0: Um, what we'll do is we'll pray and then we'll get into what we'll be doing this week. Um, so Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity to go through your word as we go through a very challenging uh, text, Lord. Um, I really pray that you would speak to us, speak through me, Lord, may the, the words that I say and, and what I have to share, may it be of you and from you, and may you guide us through this text, Lord. Um, and may you speak to us through it, Lord. You have included this in your Bible for a reason. Um, this this chapter, although it is a difficult chapter to read, is here for a purpose, Lord. And I pray, Lord, um, that you would make that purpose clear to us today, Lord. So may you, may you speak and may your word come alive. In your name I pray, amen. So if you've been here the last few weeks or a couple of months now actually, you'll know that we've been going through the book of Judges which is in the Old Testament which is essentially um, looking at a period of time in the nation of Israel. We see uh, in the earlier chapters of the Bible they have been rescued out of slavery from Egypt. They are taken out a mass exodus. We see that there is wandering around in the wilderness before they eventually God takes them to the promised land. And then we see that in Judges, we see them living in this promised land, this land that they have been promised. But we see a cycle. And essentially the cycle goes roughly along these lines. Israel forget God, abandon God, forsake the true God. They go in search of other things and worship other things. This only leads to their own destruction, their own end. They then cry out to God for help and God rescues them. He sends a redeemer to save them, and they are brought back to that place. And we see this constant rotation, this constant cycle of Israel turning away from God, crying out to God, God saving them, redeeming them, and them coming back. And as you've kind of been here the last few weeks, we have seen this history of Israel, which at times is very dark. Uh, the The very last verse of the book of Judges says this, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the very last verse of Judges and it pretty much perfectly sums up the state of Israel at that time. The nation of Israel both and think about it, the people of Israel both individually and corporately did everything that was right in their own eyes. And we see that the, the the problem wasn't that they did not have an earthly king, but rather the problem was that they did not acknowledge God as their king. And we see this. We see this in in First Samuel eight six to nine, and in the kind of the uh, a couple books after Judges, where it says this. And the Lord said to Samuel, as and this is basically the the people of Israel calling out for an earthly king. And this is what the God says to Samuel. Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. The problem wasn't that they didn't have a king. The problem was that they didn't acknowledge God as king. And when they did eventually cry out for an earthly king, God is like, no, 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 I'm your true king. And in them wanting an earthly king, they're actually rejecting me as their ultimate king. And we see that their issue is an issue of the heart, that God failed to be the Lord of their lives. And the question is, who is the true king of our lives? Israel's issue was an issue of the heart. Their hearts were far from God and the result was sin. And in the book of Judges, we witness some of the most wicked actions committed by the people of Israel. The result of people running after everything else but God. And chapter 19, which is where we find ourselves today, is no exception to this. And what we'll read now is some of the most disturbing events recorded in the Bible. Events of involving sexual abuse, murder and dismemberment. And as we go through this text, and, and not as it's important to note that not every chapter in the Bible is like this <laughs> text, but it's important to know this is an historical text, and it is literally, literally recording the events of what has happened. Um, and as we kind of go through this, it's important to note that a lot of the themes will touch and will be quite strong in nature and quite adult in nature, but Jesus has a purpose in this chapter. And not only does this chapter display the wickedness of men, but then as we look at The overall theme of the Bible is this, that man is wicked, but there is hope and redemption found in God. So would you turn with me and we'll read through this chapter. And this is chapter 19. So if you've got a Bible, it's Judges chapter 19. And it says this. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim, He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judea. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judea and was there four whole months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought... Him into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. And in verse four, Now his father in law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him their days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. And then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son in law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread and afterwards go on your way. So they sat down and the two of them ate and drank together. And then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. And then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart But the young woman's father said, Please refresh your hearts." So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow, go your way early so that you may get home. However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he rose and departed and came to opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem. With him were the two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. And they were near Jabus and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, and let us turn aside into the cities of the Jebusites. And lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. So he said to his servant, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in to lodge in Gabil, And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city. For no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Just then an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. And he was staying in Gabil, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveller in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And so he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judea toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judea. now I am going to the house of the Lord, but there is no one who will take me into his house. And although we have both straw and food for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant and for the young man who is with your servant, there is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house and gave him food Foda to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. And as they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. And they spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him carnally. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I I beg you, do not act so wickedly, seeing this man has come into my house. Do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out to you. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. And when her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up and, and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey and the man got up and went to his place. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine and divided her into 12 pieces limb by limb and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. Here we have a very disturbing event. We see, um, as we get to the end of the chapter, uh, the, the sexual abuse of a woman. And we see at many points throughout this chapter the failing of men, men failing to treat and to lead women as they are called to do. Uh, And as we kind of go through this text, and first of all, just to kind of, as we kind of look at this text, it's important to know that the author, for the majority of it, is literally just stating an event. He's literally saying, look, this event took place. There will be one moment where he does make a comment, but in general, he is literally just saying, look, this event takes place. And as we look throughout the whole of Scripture, we know that God does not condone such actions and. The heart of God most and foremost is the one that is grieved the most and angered the most at seeing such atrocities. But as we go through this text personally, I want us to take this opportunity to examine our own hearts. Uh, Specifically in the regards to area of, of sexual purity, but also in other areas of our lives, just like the sexually saturated culture that surrounds us, we see how sexual immorality is clearly present throughout the nation of Israel at this time. Israel was called to be different. Israel was called to be set apart and distinct from the other nations to pursue God and God's design for marriage, for sex and relationships. But we see that Israel here, instead they reject God and sought to be more like the world around them. And like Israel, we are also... As Christians call to be distinct, to be set apart from the world around us, the world's standard for sexual morality can be summed up in this one word, consent. In the world's eyes, as long as the sexual act is consensual between grown adults, it is permissible. But as Christians, God calls us to a higher standard of sexual purity. The Bible is clear that sexual sin is not limited to the acts of non-consensual uh, sexual activity, but it also encompasses consensual sexual activity. And in this text, we are given examples of both. Sexual sin that is both consensual and non-consensual. So let us begin to unpack this as we go through it. And we'll start and by focusing our attention On the nameless Levite. In the verse 1, we are introduced to one of the main characters of this account, which is the nameless Levite. He doesn't have a name. He's not given a name throughout the whole of this. It is simply, he's called the Levite. And it says in verse 1, And it came to pass in those days where there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. The author reminds us of the spiritual state of Israel, at the time, and introduces this Levite. And that's the first thing we find out about him, that this man is a Levite. And this is perhaps one of the saddest parts of this story. It's because this man is from the tribe of Levi. He's from a tribe of priests. He is from a tribe called to minister to the people of Israel, called to serve them, and called to point them to Jesus. But ultimately we see in his actions that he misuses, misleads, abuses and abandons the very people that he's called to lead. And for those of us in leadership of God's people, we need to take note that God will not be mocked. And these are his people and his children that he has entrusted to us. And he doesn't take it lightly when we as leaders either lead other Christians into sin, or number two, we use other Christians to fulfill our own sinful desires. And God gives plenty of warning and plenty of rebuke against leaders who do such things. In Malachi, we see this as he rebukes a, a generation of corrupt priests in Israel. And he says this, but you... Have departed from the way, you have caused many to stumble at the law, you have corrupted the covenant of Levy, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people. And even Jesus himself, warning of the consequences of those who would lead his children into sin, he says this in Matthew 18. 6-7, 6-7, to seven, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offences. God is clear to those who are called to lead his children. He will not take it lightly when those who are called to lead instead choose to misuse and abuse but the same gospel of forgiveness is available to both those who lead and to those who follow and if that is where we find ourselves today then repent of your sin and accept the consequences forsake your sin and turn back to christ embracing his finished work on the cross The Levite's heart was one of selfish gain instead of servant love. And we first get a glimpse of this in how he approaches relationships, in how he defines marriage and how he treats women. In the first verse, we see this. He says, for he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judea. Now, the word concubine is not a word that we come across very often. Uh, and to kind of help us understand here is kind of uh, an apt description for it. a concubine at that time was a sexual partner living under a man 's marital sorry, let me say that again a concubine was a sexual partner living under a man 's material care but who did not possess the legal and cultural status of wife. A concubine was not a prostitute but rather a woman who did not have the full right or status of a wife. Now, think about it for a second. Imagine, ladies, having a man approach you bending down on one knee, but instead of asking you to marry him, asks you to be his concubine. Um, and, and, and in essence, he, he's kind of saying, you're, you're kind of, you know, I kind of want you to be my wife, but I kind of don't as well. And uh, we see here the Levite, in essence, wants the benefits of marriage without the commitment, without covenantal love. And in our, remo- in our romantic relationships, are we doing the same? Are we seeking to get the benefits of marriage, whether that be physical, spiritual, or emotional intimacy, without the commitment? And he not only seeks the the benefits of marriage without commitment, but we also see he's essentially redefining marriage to fulfill his own desire. And we see this in the world around us and even in the church. We can, at times, in the, in the kind of the greater church culture, we see that people have been guilty of this, of redefining what God clearly describes as marriage to fulfill their own longings, to fulfill their own desires. And are we guilty of doing the same? In Levi's reaction with his concubine, we see his lack of love towards her. We see that all he seeks is to use her for his own personal gain. And we see this in his actions throughout the chapter. We see this. First of all, he, she does not possess the legal or cultural status of a wife to him. He, he is not fulfilling what it means to be a godly husband and giving her that role. We see that it takes him four months before he finally goes after her when she returns to her dad. We see that when he is threatened, he is willing to put her and sacrifice her in his place. He shows no remorse or compassion after she is raped and he then even dismembers her body. We see that he has no love or regard for this woman. And it is perhaps easy for us to say, well, that's not me. I would never do such a thing. Maybe not to that extent, but is our heart guilty of the same? Ultimately, the Levite saw his relationship with the woman as being a consumer rather than being covenant. And let me explain a bit further. In, in Tim, uh, Timothy Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, puts forward this. And essentially, he explains the difference between when we approach a relationship as a consumer Or if we approach a relationship as a covenant, as a love, a loving sacrificial relationship. And he says it this way In sharp contrast with our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. And throughout history, there have always been consumer relationships. And such a relationship lasts only as long as the vendor meets your needs at a cost acceptable to you. And if another vendor delivers better services or the same services at a better cost, you have no obligation to stay in a relationship to the original vendor. In consumer relationships, it could be said that the individual's needs are more important than the relationship. But they have also always been covenantal relationships. And these are relationships that are binding on us. In a covenant, the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. For example, a parent may get little emotionally out of caring for an infant, But there's always been an enormous social stigma attached to any parent who gives up their children because rearing them is too hard and unrewarding. For most people, the very idea of that is unthinkable. Why? Society still considers the parent-child relationship to be a covenantal one and not a consumer relationship. And today we stay connected, and this is kind of him going on to explain how a consumer relationship looks. And it looks like this. Today we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. And when we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we are getting, and then we cut our losses and drop the relationship, And this has also been called, uh, this is kind of a cool word, commodification. Which basically means a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships. And so, the very idea of covenant is disappearing in our culture. Here we see that this Levi is a consumer of this woman. There is no lasting, no loving, no binding covenant relationship to it. It is simply seeking what he can gain from her, what can he consume from her. And the question to us is this, are we pursuing consumer relationships or covenant relationships? Are we building and developing consumer relationships or building and developing covenant relationships? And that is our first character introduced into this situation. And then we see this. We see in verse 2, but his concubine played the harlot, which basically means she, she was unfaithful. She committed adultery against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judea and was there for four months. The concubine is unfaithful, and we don't have the specific details for what that unfaithfulness looked like, but she was just unfaithful. And after this event, she then leaves the Levite. She returns to her father. Think about it. It, take, it is four months, four months past before the Levite finally decides to go after her. And we don't know the reasons for why he finally decides to actually go and get her, but he goes. He eventually goes. He takes his servant, and he goes to her. And then we see that when he meets the father, the father actually kind of embraces him. The father welcomes him in, in, in kind of, and, and, and he, he produces a uh, signs of hospitality. Uh, and after many attempts of trying to get the son to stay longer and longer, the son finally leaves. He finally takes his concubine and makes his way back home. And then on the way, we see that he uh, it begins to get dark and they stop off at a neighboring city. And they are greeted and taken in by this old man. Uh, And in verse uh, 20, it says this, And the old man said, Peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. And so he brought him into his house and gave food to the donkeys. And they washed their feet and ate and drank we see here there are two fathers. You see the first father uh, welcomes them in, and then we see uh, as he then as they then leave, they then come to this other town they're looking for somewhere to stay, but nobody will take them in so then they come into this square, and when they are in this square they are met by this old man who then invites them in to stay at their house and yet we see in this next character in this old man who welcomes them in we see that despite his displays of hospitality, we see his failings as a father. And we see that he is not willing to protect or lay down his own life for his daughter. We see in this next man that we look at, and it's really interesting how none of these people are named. I think that's really interesting how God decided not to include the names of these people. But anyway... Let's look at this next man. So we have the Levite who has this consumer relationship and then now we are brought to terms with this old man who fails to be the father that he was called to be. In Judges 19 and in verse 23, it says this, But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. As the men surround this house to rape the Levite, the old man goes out and pleads with them. And he knows what they are desiring to do is pure evil. He describes the act as wickedly outrageous and vile. And sexual abuse is wicked, outrageous and vile. However, the father's response is just as heartbreaking. He offers up his own daughter. His own daughter he offers her up and says for these men to do whatever they want to her. And the only reason that his daughter is spared is because the Levite is quicker in giving up his concubine. Although I am not myself a father, I have been blessed to witness the protective hearts of godly men who love their wives and seek to protect their wives and children. And here we see a father who fails to protect his daughter and instead of sacrificially laying down his life for her, as as Jesus does for us, he simply gives her up. Men, as husbands and as fathers and as brothers, we are called to protect the women in our lives. And the majority of us will most likely never face such a situation, such a choice. But in our day-to-day lives and relationships, are we seeking to protect our wives, our mothers and sisters? Or are we seeking our own gain? Are we making wise choices which best serve and protect them? Or do we simply see them as objects for our own again how do we see and treat the women around us and paul gives some very practical and very beautiful advice to timothy in his letter in the new testament and he says this to him do not rebuke an older man but exalt him as a father younger men as brothers older men as mothers younger women as sisters with all purity. In essence, he says to Timothy, treat older women as your mothers and treat younger women as your very sisters with all purity. So here is the question to us. Are we treating as men, are we treating women as sisters with all purity? Are we seeking to lovingly care and protect them as we would do our very own sisters? Uh, In his book, Dear Son, uh, by a pastor called Dave uh, Briskus, and it's a really good book, and I would encourage anybody to read it. It's called Dear Son, and in in essence, the pastor writes a series of letters to the son that he never had. Uh, And in this uh, book, he recounts a very modern tragic story, which happened in his life, uh, which is, in some ways, is, is in some ways is very similar to some of the events that happen in the chapter we just read in Judges. And here's an example of a woman failed by the men in her life, and he recounts this story. He says this: "The last days of December 2006 were some of the darkest of my life." I was pastoring a small church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Sharika Hill, a young woman just 19 years old and an active participant in our church for several years, was brutally murdered by a man who was paying her to dance for him in his trailer home. Sharika's so-called boyfriend dropped her off to perform the private dance for a man in exchange for $500. And what has taken Sharika's life was killing my city too. Men were the demise of Sharika Hill. Her dad failed her. Her boyfriend used her for money. Her client used her for sex. Strangled her, then discarded her like a cheap disposable razor. Although technically only one young man killed Sharika, many more young men were responsible for her hard life. And maybe what she needed in the absence of her father was a brother. A young man who refused to abuse or use her, but who instead chose to protect her purity. Hope for our cities, our countries and world lies in the hearts of young men loving and serving women and children instead of using and abusing them. And just like Sharika, this concubine, this woman was failed by multiple men and not just her abusers. And granted, it is a strong example, but the principle stands. Will we treat women with all purity, seeking to protect, to guard, and point them to Jesus, or will we simply seek to use them? And as kind of Dave Briskwith continues on his, in his book, he calls men. To repent of their failings, to embrace the call of Jesus and become godly brothers. He says, This I want for you what I would have wanted for my son that you be a man of courage and a good brother and friend to the women in your life. In a culture that devalues women, I want you to fight for purity in how you love and protect your mother, your sisters, and your friends. Being present as a source of strength for young women as they walk through life's storms is important too. Women need to be reminded they are far more than sex objects or status symbols who exist for the pleasure of men. They are created in the image of God to mirror his greatness. Women exist for God just as men do. They have intrinsic dignity but unfortunately as we see in this account it is this very intrinsic intrinsic dignity which is completely disregarded and violated in a horrible act of sexual abuse verse 22 and it says this as they were enjoying themselves suddenly Certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. And they spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, "Bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him carnally." What we tend, to, uh, it's, in, it's important to note that as the author introduces these men, these men who who essentially gang rape this woman. We see that the author throughout the whole of the chapter is simply he's, he's simply laying out the chapter and he's not making comments on the event, but we see here he actually and it's really it's really subtle and you can almost miss it, but the author himself makes comments on what kind of men these are, as he says and as I say it's a small thing to miss, but he calls this gang of men perverted he literally the author himself. Takes, uh, he takes this event and actually makes a comment. He says that these men who did such a thing are perverted. And, and the ESV translation even translates it as worthless. The author wants us to know what kind of men these are. These men are evil men, worthless men, wicked men. Those who sexually abuse or seek to do so are perverted. And if we are guilty of sexually, abu- sexually abusing another human being or seeking to do so, we are worthless, wicked and perverted. But this is the message of the Bible. That Jesus died on the cross, rose again to take worthless men like you and me and turn them into godly men. And I'll say that again. God takes worthless men like you and me and he turns them into godly men. And that begins at the place of repentance. We confess our sin, we agree with God how wrong our sin is and we forsake it and instead we come to the cross and accept his gift of forgiveness and his offer of new life. These wicked men are in need of salvation just as much as we are. And then it continues on and we actually begin to see in 25 that despite the pleas of the older man, they will not heed. In 25, but the men would not heed. And so the man, that is the Levite, took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go the Levi offers up his concubine in his place. And until morning, she is repeatedly raped and abused by the gang of men until morning. And words are not enough to describe such an atrocious act. We see that accounts like this really prove just how evil man is, and what wickedness we are capable of. Yet as we see throughout scripture, Jesus gives hope both to those who have been sinned against, but also to those who sin. And uh, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, um, well, as we kind of Look at these last few bits. Sexual assault is such a huge subject. And unfortunately, just due to time, we will not have enough time to, to, to cover such a big subject. Um, but there are, there are some really good resources out there. If, if, if either in your past or something you still or have been affected by or, or those you seek to minister to. Um, two good books I've come across is one is called Rid of My Disgrace, which is by a guy called Justin Holcomb, and another book called Redemption by Mike Wilkerson. And they kind of explore these themes a bit more on how Jesus and the gospel specifically address those who have been affected by such evil Um, But in this short remainder of time, we'll look at a few things, just brief things related to this area of sexual assault. And in understanding sexual assault, it's important. We need to define it. We need to be able to to define it to understand who it is affected and how we can best minister to them. And in their book, Rid of My Disgrace, uh, Justin Holcomb gives a really helpful definition of what sexual assault is. And he says it this. There are three parts to our definition of sexual assault. Number one, any type of sexual behaviour or contact. Number two, where consent is not freely given or obtained. And number three, is accomplished through false intimidation, violence, corrosion, manipulation, threat, deception, or abuse of Authority. And let me say that one more time. We see the definition is this any type of sexual behavior or contact where consent is not freely given or obtained and is accomplished through force, intimidation, violence, corrosion, manipulation, threat, deception, or abuse of authority. And as we see, this account in Judges is a clear example of sexual assault and the effects of it are devastating. And in the case of this chapter and this event, we ultimately see that it leads to the woman's death. And we see this as we read in 26 to 27, it says this, Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. And when her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. Literally, she had just collapses after this event, and as we see from the few verses. From the Levites' description in the following chapter, which PT will cover next week, he, he, he says this, And the men of Gebel rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. And, then, and the, la- the woman's lack of response when the Levite speaks to her after the assault in 28, when he says, And he said to her, Get up and let's be going. But there was no answer from her it would appear that at some point between the event of the sexual assault and the levite returning home with her body before he essentially well decapitates and, and takes cuts apart her body we see between those two points at some point she passes away from the violence and the abuse done to her we see that this Sexual assault leads to her death. However, for victims who actually survive the initial result, the pain does not end at the event, but continues afterwards. For this poor woman, the events led to her death, but for those who suffer from sexual assault, who survive the assault, we see that afterwards the effects of it Continue to leave a lasting impact. And it says this in Rid of My Disgrace Sexual assault can bring physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual pain that often leads to shame, embarrassment, degra- De- sorry, degradation, denial, a profound sense of emptiness, guilt, a sense of powerlessness. Anger, a sense of helplessness, vulnerability, fear, depression, isolation and or anxiety. These emotions are generally associated with the victim's response to sexual assault. Even after the initial assault, the effects emotionally, spiritually, physically are devastating and continue long after. So the question is for the sexual assault victim, what should they do when such a thing happens? And, we're, and unfortunately we can't go into too much depth, and, but here's a few things which I would advise to somebody who has suffered such an atrocity. And the first thing is this, name the assault for what it is. In The Riddle of My Disgrace, it says this, we must name the troubling past truthfully. We must come to clarity about what happened, how we reacted and how we are reacting to it now, to be freed from its destructive hold on our lives. Granted, truthful naming will not by itself heal memories of wrongs suffered, but without truthful naming all measures we might undertake to heal such memories will remain incomplete. My first thing is this, look, don't try and deny what has happened or hide what has happened, but be truthful about what has taken place and seek godly counsel and fellowship. You cannot do this on your own. Seek help. Find those who are older, wiser, who can speak into your life. And journey with you on the process to healing, but ultimately, above all things, run to Jesus, because our God is a God who heals the brokenhearted. In Psalm 147, the psalmist says He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And in Psalm 34, he says, "This the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart." And in the book Redemption, a guy called Michael R. that says it this way, the very experiences that threaten to drive you the furthest from God are the exact experiences that bring you into the closest possible fellowship with your Saviour. If you are a victim, lean into Jesus. And allow him to walk with you through healing. One of the last things that we see in this text, and a really sad thing, we see that after not only the devastating results of sexual assault, but we also see in this passage an incorrect response to victims. And we see this in the Levite's response to his concubine. 27 says this When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and centre throughout all the territory of Israel. The Levite's response is heartbreaking and reveals his lack of love for this woman. His response is as if nothing has happened. He fails to, to show any sort of emotion or empathy. He simply puts her on his donkey and goes home. And then the chapter ends with him dividing her lifeless corpse. We see here an incorrect response to those who have suffered from sexual assault. As those of us who may be called to minister to victims, Unlike this man, this Levite, we are called to lovingly serve and point them to Jesus. Uh, in the book of Riddle, My Disgrace, there's a real help, really helpful section at the end which offers really practical advice of what to do with somebody who has suffered. Uh, when, if you're seeking to help somebody who has suffered from sexual assault. But unfortunately, just for the sake of time, we won't have a chance read through it, but I would encourage you to to get the book yourselves. But ultimately this is what we're called to do, unlike this man who showed no remorse, who, who, who acted as if nothing had happened. We are instead called to be available to serve, to seek the Lord and follow his lead in how we should lovingly serve victims. And in the book, Real Marriage, uh, uh, one of the authors, uh, Grace Driscoll, describes the blessing of being able to walk alongside others who have experienced sexual assault. By God's grace, she says this, by God's grace, I get to hear stories of redemption and enjoy my own. We get to actually comfort others with the comfort we have received when we take what we have learned and share it with other women. When a friend tells you about her history of abuse, that is the important first step to walking on the road to redemption. Be a tender listener and a safe confident. Pray for her and with her and ask God for wisdom, truth and healing in the journey. If we do have the opportunity to serve those who have experienced such suffering may we be a tender listener and a safe confident may we be willing to serve ready to listen ready to pray for them and ready to seek God in his wisdom and his truth as we journey with them in that process of healing as we see we'll see next week when PT continues We will see that ultimately these events lead to the gathering of the tribes of Israel as they gather against the tribe of Benjamin. And we essentially see a civil war take place and uh, the tribe of Benjamin is almost completely wiped out as a result. All of this carnage, all of this destruction, all of this pain, all of this Sorrow, why? Because every man did what was right in his own eyes. And what should have been the response of the people of Israel, both individually and corporately, is the same as what should be our response. Repentance of our sin and a turning back to Jesus And I just want to end with a couple more thoughts as we bring this to a close. Not only do we see this poor, poor woman absolutely abused and violated, but we also see that the victim is also a sinner. As we see in the beginning of the text, although the concubine is greatly sinned against, we also see that she is also guilty of her own sexual sin in her life. We see that she commits uh, an affair, is unfaithful to, uh, well, to quote-unquote her husband. Or, um, and we see that, yeah, that there is sin in her own life. And we'll see this. The Bible tells us that, yes, we are people who are not just sinned against, but we are also people who are guilty of our own sin. We are all need of, in need of repentance and our loving Father is ready to open His arms. The question is will we confess our sin for what it is, sexual or otherwise? Will we repent of it? Will we literally forsake it, which is means to kind of turn our back on it? And will we instead embrace the God who loves us and who died on a cross for every wrong thing that we ever did? For those who are victims. Of sexual sin. Jesus. Says this. Through. The author John. In his first letter. But if we walk in the light. As he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ. His son. Cleanses us from all sin. And if we say that we have no sin. We deceive ourselves. And and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For the victim, it is this, come into the light. Expose not just the sin committed against you, but also expose your own sin. And in that process of coming into the light, receive that fellowship that community, that love with one another, but then also receive the cleansing of your sin by the blood of Jesus, but also the cleansing and healing of the sin that was committed against you. In Jesus we have cleansing, not just from that which is committed against us, but also for that which we have committed. And for those of us who are guilty of committing sexual sin or really any kind of sin, Jesus says this. And, and I love this verse. He says this to the woman caught in adultery. He says, woman, where are those accusers of, you's, of yours? Rather? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life to the person. Just as in this text, just as in, just as this Jesus says to this woman caught in adultery he says to us he says to you and he says to me guilty of sin sexual sin or, or other sin he says this neither do I condemn you go and sin no more and how could Jesus say such a thing how could he say that we are guilty we know that we are guilty before him and yet he says I do not condemn you go sin no more and this is why because On the cross, he bore the punishment which we deserved. God himself became a man and endured abuse, shame, pain and took upon himself the punishment which we deserved. Our sin is so serious that it nailed Jesus to a cross, but he loved us so much that he willingly endured it and then rose again proving that he had conquered death and sin once and for all and now he calls us to put our trust in him and follow for the person guilty of sin and for the person who has been sinned against jesus says this i have died on a cross for every wrong thing that you have done and for every wrong thing done against you And now put your trust in me, accept that gift of forgiveness and embrace me and follow me. Let us pray together as we draw this to a close. Father, I just want to thank you for this time, Lord. A very challenging time. a A very difficult time. A difficult text to come face to face with where we see just how evil and wicked man is. Father, I pray, Lord, that for the victim... That we would come into the light and that we would be honest about what has happened and seek help and ultimately run into your arms. And for those of us who are guilty of committing such sin, of misusing people and seeking to consume people as opposed to lovingly serve, forgive us, Father. Forgive us for our sin. We forsake it. We turn our back on it. We repent of it. And instead we embrace you. If you are the victim today, come near to Jesus. Draw near to him. Cry out to him for he hears and he comforts the broken. And if you are guilty, if you are a sinner, guilty, of abusing others for your own gain, then once again, come to the cross. Repent of your sin and accept Jesus' gift of forgiveness on the cross and forsake. That means to turn your back on that destructive, that evil, that wicked, that worthless lifestyle. Father, I thank you that the message of the Bible is that you change worthless men you take worthless men like you you take worthless men and women like us and you save us and change us into godly women so this is my prayer today that you would do so that you would change our hearts that you would make our hearts and our actions and our eyes pure that we would look at others not seeking to use them but seeking to lovingly lead protect and guide and serve And forgive us where we have failed to do so. Father, may you change us from worthless men to godly men. And for those who are victims, may you heal us and bring us to that point where that assault doesn't define us, but rather you define us. And you heal us and you restore us and you make us new. Father, as we go away from here, help us to meditate on these things and to put them into practice. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.